reading today from John's Gospel, chapter 18 from verse 12 to 27. So there's quite a lot to get through, so please bear with me. If we could all stand, please, that would be great uh, for the reading of the word, if you're able. So John chapter 18, it should be projected for you, verses 12 to 27. Please read with me if you're able. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Ananias, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus. And so did another, another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly in the, to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also, are one, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. You may be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, the one who made all things, Lord, I just ask at this moment that you would be with us, that you, you already are amongst us, Lord, but we, I ask, Lord, that the words of my mouth, Lord, and that the meditation of my heart, Lord, will be acceptable in your sight, Lord. O oh God, our strength and our redeemer, in whom we trust, Lord. Lord, I ask, Lord, that uh, the mysteries of the gospel, Lord, will be made known to those who do not yet know it, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that those who have already been enlightened by the gospel, Lord, will be strengthened, would be encouraged. So, Lord, hear my plea, Lord. Hear my petition today, Lord. And be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, we're continuing, for those who are visiting, in a series which is entitled Superman HD. So Jesus, this very great mystery that Jesus is fully God, yet he is fully man. While I was preparing this message, I've had a lot of trouble. Uh, in fact, yesterday my computer hard drive completely failed. So my sermon was completely kaput. I had to rewrite out the, mes the message. But God is good and God is faithful, right? What we're going through right now is talking about Jesus' trial and Peter's denial. And life is full of trials. But the importance of God, God's word is that it shapes the way we think about ourselves it shapes the way we think about God when we go through these trials. Amen. 
So just giving a bit of background to this passage, we're faced with Jesus' trial and Peter's denial. We have a group of Pharisees who, believing they were doing service to God, as Jesus speaks of previously in chapter 16, these Pharisees sought to discredit evidence which supported Jesus' claim to divinity, causing some to fear. They also feared the fact that six days prior to this, Jesus had rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And what did they cry unto him? Hosanna! Hosanna! So what I want you to take from this is that it's important that we have a knowledge of God's word, the importance of abiding in that word, the importance of being fruitful and understanding God's eternal purposes while prayerfully enduring suffering. So from chapter 13, we have this amazing discourse where Jesus, it said, he no longer walked openly. He took aside his disciples and he had this enormous discourse with them. Jesus reminded them many times, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer. I will die. Yet his encouragement to his disciples is that the Holy Spirit will empower them. They will be hated. And Jesus reminds them of this in the fact that he prays for them. He agonizes this, this struggle that we have, that we are in the world, yet we are not of the world. And the amazing story of this passage is Jesus is brought so low, yet we see Peter is brought even lower. And also what we see in, this, in the passage before, which Elder Mark preached last week, was this real struggle of control. The scribes and the Pharisees tried to elevate themselves and show that they were better. They had this real struggle of trying to arrest Jesus. Many times they had tried to do it publicly and they failed. We see many instances where it said Jesus went in the midst and went, went away from them. So what do they do? They seek to capture him privately. And there's no other private way to capture someone than in the dark, right? We see in the garden that Jesus' power is demonstrated under immense threat. This threat that he faces, though, he completely counters. He even forces the admission of those who are to arrest him that they will not capture his disciples. He says, who do you seek? And he reminds them again, it is I that you have come to seek, not my disciples. And he provides a way for his disciples to be protected. The amazing truth is that Jesus laid down his life. No one took it from him. He shows again that he is God, which is the theme of this book, by creating an ear for a man who he does not know, who one of his disciples has tried to probably, like Mark said, strike, the ear, strike his head off. God in his providence allows his ear to come off and allows him to be healed. What an amazing God, right? So again, bringing that back, the purpose of the book is to demonstrate to us that Jesus is God. And in chapter 20, verse 31, it says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
What is amazing that there are seven key miracles throughout the book of John. The final one culminates with the resurrection of Lazarus. And it is at this point that the enemies of Jesus say, enough is enough. This is it, enough. He must be arrested. He must be tried and he must be crucified. So what we have here in chapter 18, 12 to 27 is this very interesting narrative. We have this narrative which is quite synonymous with Greek uh, literature, quite romantic. So these two stories are almost intertwined. And we ask ourselves, why didn't the Holy Spirit and John write this in a way that we have Jesus' account of his trial, Peter's denial completely separated? Well, therein lies the reality that of all scripture, that the purpose of, of scripture is to glorify Christ, right? Glorify God. So what we have here is the glory of Christ and the sinfulness of man. And it's important that these two, these two episodes are intertwined, that we may understand how sinful we are and how glorious Christ is. So it's by way of contrast that John and the Holy Spirit use the way it's been presented to show us this. So what we see is that Jesus is the ideal man. He is the ideal servant. He is the ideal king. And he is the ideal God. So as I mentioned earlier, one of, the mo one of the most important themes which is fundamental of all scripture is the glory of Christ and the sinfulness of man. Je another key theme is that Jesus was a servant. In comparison to what we see of the other characters in this story who have this completely opposite view of what it means to be an authority, a love of money, a fear of man, as we see in Peter. And Jesus, in complete opposite, shows a love of others and an understanding of God's will. We then have the hatred of the world, yet the, the fact that Jesus overcame the world. And then something that I think we all truly struggle with. Self-confidence versus confidence in God. So let us begin as we attempt to move through this passage. So verse 12, I've given you a bit of backdrop as to what's going on and Mark did last week. So so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So here we have a group of people, completely mixed group. We have Jews, we have Gentiles. We have free, we have bound. We have officers, we have servants. Yet all conspire and plot to kill our Savior. So if we can project on the screen John 11, verse 45, this will give a bit more understanding as to the reason why they plotted to kill Jesus. Amen. So many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he had did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered to the council and said, What are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor you, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. 
He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So here we see the Pharisees' motive to kill Jesus. We see that It was not only because he did many signs, but what is the fundamental and central theme to this is that in verse 49, or sorry, verse 48, forgive me, it says, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They cared more about their position They cared more about their place in society. They cared more about how people thought of them than the truth and the reality which Caiaphas actually, God actually used Caiaphas to prophesy that Jesus would die for the nation. So they arrested him and they bound him. What's amazing is that, as Mark mentioned last week, Jesus said, I am. They fell down. Knocked back by the complete glory of Christ. Yet, they're so adamant to kill him that they just do it anyway. Doesn't this just show the deceitfulness of sin? What else I find is interesting is that they did what Judas had advised them to do, which was to bind him. Matthew 22, 6 says, bind him, bind him fast. Like, hold him tight. (laughs) Another thing is that there are two things. There's a thing called typical prophecy, and there's a thing called literal prophecy, like I said, okay. So a literal prophecy would be Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. We can see that that's fulfilled, it's spoken of, it's a word. Whereas whereas a a typical prophecy is one that is a type. So for example, you had through Leviticus and Deuteronomy all these patterns, all these sacrifices which pointed to who? To Jesus, amen. And so as Jesus is bound, it's a typical prophecy of the sacrificial sin offering And if we just put up Psalm 118, 27, it says here, The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the feast or sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Where else do we see uh, this demonstrated? Can anyone remember the young man that had to go up the hill, whose father was praying and begging, give me a son, give me a son, and yet, Amen, Abraham and Isaac. So, and what, what did they do to Isaac? They, they, they bound him, they tied him up, and that was, again, a picture of Christ. So we move to verse 13. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, we're just going to pause here for a moment upon these two characters. These two individuals who are just Just despicable, really. Um, So we have Annas here. Try Try and imagine yourself in this time. So Judaism, well, Israelites are in complete apostasy due to due to just their sin. Obviously, there's Roman rule, and as a result of this, there's a completely fragmented priesthood. What's interesting about these accounts of Annas and Caiaphas is there is a religious trial and there's a civil trial. In the religious trial, we see Annas, who takes Jesus first, then he's taken to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and then again in the morning, where they bring about two false witnesses trying to condemn Jesus. And then the civil trial, who who do we see? How How do Rome try to deal with this? We see Pilate, 
tried to deal with him. He doesn't really want to do it. Passed over to Herod. Herod's like, ah. And then again to Pilate. Under complete duress, the Romans are coerced by the Jews into crucifying this innocent man. What is so ironic about Annas' name, and as we go to read on about this perverted individual, is that his name means gracious, merciful. Yet he's completely opposite to that. So Annas is this guy who has great power. He was appointed a high priest by Quirinius in AD 7. So around AD 7, obviously, Jesus is seven years old. Um, He's a young man. So if you can imagine, this high priest, Annas, would have been around the time that Jesus was actually taken to Jerusalem by his parents for Passover, that time when he was teaching, well, sharing about fruit of the words um, as a young man. And he was high priest from AD 7 to AD 15, when he was eventually deposed by Valerius Gratus, the governor that would have preceded Pilate. Now, this guy had so much control, this was ultimately why he was deposed. Because Rome, as an empire, was one that, when they invaded a place, they didn't take away the cultural society completely. They would allow them to live within, within the realms of Roman law. But what they did not want is somebody who would exalt themselves to a place where they had too much authority. And Annas was at this place where he had too much authority. And they didn't like it. This guy, he bribed his way into the office. Um, he, he bribed family members. He used his great wealth and finances uh, to get into the office of high priest. So you can see here the the meaning of high priest is just completely perverted. As we read in, in verses following, it's, it's a bit confusing because it's like, Annas is the high priest, yet Caiaphas is. Well, let me just try and allow you to understand this. So you ask, what, how did this guy get his great wealth? He got his great wealth through uh, corruption. And corruption by means of, our brother Mark preached last week about how at some Passovers, there'll be 250,000 lambs slaughtered. So what this guy's job was, is that he set up this approved animal sacrifices system where people, remember when it was Passover, everyone came to Jerusalem, whether they are from Turkey, whether they are from Europe, whether they came to Jerusalem. And what he would do is he would say, okay, it needs to meet this standard. So it would have an examination. What are we told of in the Old Testament of how a lamb should meet the standard? It should be without spot or blemish. Good. So this is what he did. He, he, they would come along with their lamb. He would inspect it and just say, oh, it's not good enough. You need to go and buy one over there at one of my booths. That's what he did. And it was known as the Bazaar of Annas. He would take tax for those who would even try to come with foreign currency to try and buy one of these, these special sacrificial lambs, the ones that he had approved of. And then he would charge an extortionate rate for the exchange of that foreign currency. So if you can imagine, the Jews hated this guy. Like He was just a swindler. He was the worst of the worst. Yet, as far as he was concerned, he was making money. He was, he was doing good. The Talmud reads, Woe to the house of Annas. Woe to their serpents hiss. They are high priests. Their sons are keepers of the treasury. Their sons-in-law, guardians of the temple. Their servants beat the people with staves. So here is just a bit of historical background as to Jewish culture and how, what people thought of Annas. So if you can imagine, this guy has so much authority... Yet when Jesus appears on the scene, he doesn't like it. And the reason he doesn't like it is because if you can trace your mind back to when Jesus storms into the temple, what does he do? 
He turns over the tables of the money changers. And who is the biggest wheel, the biggest cog in this, in this, in this Jewish culture? It's Annas. He hates it. His position is put under complete threat, and he doesn't like it. And again, Caiaphas doesn't like it either. His office is completely threatened. But as far as we're concerned, all he is, he's a paid politician. He's a puppet. That's all he does. All he does is he dances to the tune of Rome. That is why Caiaphas was put in place rather than Annas. This guy Annas had too much authority. Yet, traditionally, as far as Jews understand, they just, they just saw Annas as the high priest. He was the top guy. Look, imagine, I don't know, Lord Sugar, someone like that. This guy was just top, top businessman. He didn't care who he trampled on, just didn't care. So first they led him to Annas, verse 13, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So yeah, father-in-law, so again, he bribed uh, the Romans to bring in Caiaphas. So it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. We just read of that previously. Amen. So verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So, Peter, what's he doing? Why is he following Jesus? Did Jesus say to come? No. <laughs> no, he didn't. Got to study your words, son. <laughs> Jesus, as I said, had provided a shelter for his disciples to escape. And we asked, why, why did he do that? Think about, think about what was going to happen. What was going to happen after Jesus died? What was going to happen to the message? It needed to spread, right? So we were talking about this in community group last week. God will keep you alive for his purposes. This is why we don't need to fear death. God will keep you alive for his purposes. And his purpose is that you preach the gospel. So we see Peter following Jesus, and it says, so did another disciple. Sorry. Yeah, so did another disciple. So there have been many uh, suggestions from commentators as to who this disciple is. Some think it's John because he often refers to himself in the third person. Um, uh, I'm, not, I'm not, not completely convinced. It could be John. Yet, one would need to ask, why, why would they let John in? John was one of the inner three, right? It was clear that he was going hard for Jesus. Like, he was, he was one, of the, one of them, one of the guys. So you have to ask yourself, why would, why would they let him in? Another suggestion could be that it would be Nicodemus. He was part of the Sanhedrin. We know that what happened to him, he, he accepted Jesus. He, had, he was asking Jesus about what it meant to be born again. Could have also been Joseph of Arimathea, quite a wealthy aristocrat who, again, we later understand comes to know the Lord. So we come, to the, come here and we're asking, okay, why is, why is Peter here? He entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple was known to the high priest. He went in and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So Peter gets this bring in from this unnamed disciple into into the courtyard of the high priest. 
But Peter stood outside. Sorry, we read that. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. So if we reflect upon the verse before, Peter has a complete lack of preparation. We read about it in verse in chapter 17, how Jesus is praying. What do all the other disciples do? They fall asleep. <clears throat> Prayer is so essential to us being prepared to give an answer for our faith. Without prayer, we're, we're like, we're naked, completely exposed, no defense. Peter, we know as a character throughout scripture, is one who's always trying to be like, Jesus, I'm your guy, I'm your guy, I'm that one. Like, I'll be, I'll be the one that rides with you to the end. So impetuous. So Peter's always the one that's very vocal, very outspoken. Yet on this occasion, he seems lost for words. But yet he still speaks. Proverbs chapter 10 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his his lips is prudent, otherwise wise. So, in Peter, and the fact that he's being tried here or questioned about whether he's one of Jesus' disciples, he doesn't have to say anything, yet he just opens his mouth. How often do we as believers just act impetuously? And it's often when we're unprepared, right? This is, I think this is what the Lord is trying to communicate to us, is that with a lack of preparation... In prayer comes disastrous consequences. Verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples. I read that already, forgive me. So the temptation arrives through completely unexpected means. So as we're going to read on later, we see Jesus is faced by quite a fierce threat of his life. Does Peter face a threat of his life? No. From who? Who's he facing a threat from? A little girl. A servant girl. What's he doing? Peter. But the fact is, Peter has self-confidence in his own words. If we look at Luke chapter 12, verse 11 to 12, Jesus tells them about the fact that they're going to be brought before people and tested. Their faith is going to be tested. So Luke 12, 11 to 12 reads, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about how you defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So you can imagine Peter as he's going down into this courtyard. He's probably thinking, what am I going to say? Oh, yeah, I'm going to get him with this. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to be like, Jesus, I'm with you. But what does he do? He's just weak. He's not even ready. And the fact is, because he's not prayed, he's not equipped with the Holy Spirit. What I thought, What's quite interesting as I was studying this is that we see in the passage last week from 1 to 11 that Jesus says emphatically three times, I am. Obviously when it was read in the English it says, I am he. He's in italics means it's just there for us to understand and for it to flow as we read it in English. But literally he was saying, I am. I am. I am. Yet, what does Peter do? He says, I am not. Amazing, right? I am not. I am not God. We can say I am is even synonymous with God. When, when Moses was spoken to by God through the burning bush, he said, who shall I say send me? I am. Just God. 
It's God. So what I believe the Holy Spirit is telling us here is that Peter's saying, I'm not God. He's actually, in the same way that Caiaphas expressed that prophecy just unknowingly, Peter does the same thing. I'm not God. This amazing self-confession unconsciously. So, verse 18. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was with them, standing and warming himself. Again, what's Peter doing here? Why is, why is he standing with sinners? Isn't this just synonymous of Psalms 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the, of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Again, that self-confidence as opposed to confidence in God. And we know that it's night because it says it's cold. How do you know that, you say? Well, we know that because Passover was around the month of what is known as today Aviv, because that's the Babylonian uh, term for it. But before that, it was uh, Nisan. And this was like the spring months, so we know it would have been warm. So the fact that it's cold kind of shows us that it's night. We already read before it's night. But the fact is, it's been night, if you can imagine, from chapter 13, verse 30, all the way up to here. It's been night. Jesus is teaching his disciples for all those, all those chapters, from chapter 13 all the way up to the end of 17 when he's praying. That's a lot of, that's a lot of chapters given to, to Jesus teaching them about the importance of, as I mentioned earlier, abiding in the word, understanding the word, knowing the word, being prepared for persecution, the hatred of the world. And yet they come to, Peter comes to this stage where everything that Jesus has said is in one ear and it's out the other. May God help us as we listen to God's word that it's not in one ear and out of the other. And what's amazing as well is that Peter is more concerned with his comfort than he is the will of God. He's warming himself when it's cold. So we know he shouldn't be there, really, because Jesus just protected them from great physical threat. And doesn't this just demonstrate to us sin? We love our sin. It's comfortable. It's nice. Oh, I've got my little sin. I don't want you, Jesus. That's what we're saying. And it's the fact that it's so progressive. He's already denied Jesus. And yet now he's standing and warming himself with the servants and the officers who had just arrested his Lord. So verse, verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So as I mentioned earlier, this is referring to Annas. It's not referring to Caiaphas. So we have this, this joint, almost joint priesthood, the one who's the actual one that's understood as the power by the rest of the Jews and this one who's been initiated by the Romans as a figurehead or, yeah, a puppet. So it's Annas here questioning Jesus. What's he doing questioning Jesus? Who is he? Who's he to judge? 
And what he asks is, he asks Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And this begins Jesus' unjust trial. We read earlier in scripture that Jesus said, if his me- Jesus' message is unclear, it's, it's to ones like Annas, to whom it, it's been hidden from, through the hardness of their heart. So there's several things surrounding this trial that are quite concerning. It's a completely illegal trial. So Jewish law prohibits that anyone can be tried at night. should be in day. It's on the eve of the Sabbath. It's on the eve of festival, it's the Passover, and also they, they took this stance that one was innocent until proven guilty. So you couldn't actually testify to bring about guilt by yourself. There's no way that, that you could condemn yourself by your own words. So it's almost like, yeah. And Roman law, in fact, agreed with this. So Maimonides, a great Jewish scholar, says, our true law does not inflict the penalty of death upon a sinner by his own confession. The Talmud, again, a central text of rabbinic Judaism, says, criminal process can neither commence nor terminate but during the course of a day. So you've got to ask, we've got to ask ourselves, why does Jesus ask, why does Anna, sorry, ask these two particular questions? He questions Jesus about his disciples, and he questions Jesus about his teaching. Well, we already know that they're, cons- they're concerned about his disciples because They see Jesus as a threat. They see him as almost a, yeah, they see him as a political threat. They see him as somebody who will take away, as we read earlier in John 11, take away their place. And also they're trying to build up evidence to suggest to the Romans that Jesus is forming an insurrection that the people are going to rise up and try and overthrow Rome. He's probably trying to discern how many followers he has. And again, he asks him questions about his teaching. So he poses the question as though it's, he's concerned with actually theology, but he's not. All he's concerned about is politics to build up evidence to bring before Rome. So verse, and as we see, sorry, in in chapter 19, that's, that's the accusation they bring before Rome, that everyone who, everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. He made himself the son of God. That's what they're saying. So verse 20, Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Jesus willfully cooperates. Yet we know that, again, he has his disciples' interests at heart. When we go through trials, are we concerned about ourselves or are we concerned about others? When you're faced with the temptation to sin, are you thinking, oh, are you thinking about yourself? Are you thinking, what effect will this have upon my family? What effect will this have upon my friends? What effect will this have upon people in my workplace who see me every day? 
Jesus was thinking about the eternal purpose. And he was not willing to compromise his followers' safety. Verse 21. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Jesus again is here. He's, he's actually rebuking the fact that they're questioning him. They have no right to do so. In our uh, judicial system, that's usually how it's presented, isn't it? You have the person who, who's prosecuting, the accused, the defendant. It didn't happen like that in, in Jewish culture. It was You had to bring a witness before the trial would even start. Where are the witnesses? Jesus saying, why do you ask me? Again, searching deeper and questioning Annas' motives. I don't know about you, but to me, this just screams out God's mercy and God's grace. All throughout the trial, Jesus, as well as having a concern for his disciples, has a deep concern for the sin of Annas and Caiaphas. Again, he says, all those who have heard me, what I said to them, they know what I said. And as we read earlier and later in the Gospels, it's, that, it's this attempt from the Jews to discard every possible shred of evidence, eyewitness evidence that Jesus is God. He is Lord. So we've got Jesus, the, the lie that is perpetuated amongst Jews that Jesus' body was stolen, taken away from his tomb by his disciples. We, we know that didn't happen. And this is why John is writing this book, that we may know that Jesus is God. Right? We also have, more recently, the bloody history of, of saints who have been martyred. Um, we also have the fact that Jesus ensures that the guilt is theirs. Verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Now here we have hatred without cause. In chapter 15, we read about how Jesus warns his disciples that they're going to face hatred without cause. The world hated me, it will hate you also. And that's something I think we really need to get into our heads as believers, that the world doesn't love us. John chapter 16, 20 to 25. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep, also keep yours. Not sure if it's 15 or 16. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me also hates my father. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Excuse me. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So we're to expect hatred, church. Because Jesus predicts it. We're to expect hatred because the world hates correction. We hear about the Holy Spirit he's bring, who comes to bring um, sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's exposing, exposing our wickedness. We should expect hatred because as Christians we should hate. We're at war with the world. We're not of it, and we live segregated from it. 
So what's amazing here is Jesus' response in complete contrast to Peter's. Jesus shows no guile, no vengeance. He's struck around the face. Come on. God's being struck in the face. He does nothing. Just sit and think about that. But what we read in James 2, and I would encourage you uh, to go into James. James is a very practical book in terms of the context of this uh, in the face of persecution. What is our response? That the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Some people like to compare Paul in his response to being to being struck by one of the, the priests in Acts 23, 2-5. It says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. This is Apostle Paul. When Paul said to him, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So, yeah, those who try to compare Paul's response, it's, it's night and day. Paul responds in a sinful way. Jesus responds in a righteous way. So I must move on. Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Yeah, so why, why did they need to strike him if what, what Jesus said was wrong, wasn't wrong? Verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Annas here is at the point where he's like, oh, I'm completely done. I'm not getting anywhere. And anyway, I'm not even really the, the true figurative high priest. <sighs> Caiaphas, just sort it out, please. That's, what, that's what's essentially happening here. Um, and the fact is that we know that they go on to have two conflicting testimonies in the morning. Um, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. High priest tears his clothes and says, who are you like to, to say you're God? They abused Jesus, slapped him, spat on him, pushed him. And then they have the audacity to mingle in the crowd, shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So to sum up, the the Jewish trial of Jesus was absolutely illegal, absolutely unjust. As we sing in the song, Power of the Cross, he was tried by sinful men. Verse 25 Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Again, the emphatic. That's the second one. What is so interesting about this is that obviously Jesus is disappointed that Judas has betrayed him. But the fact that Peter's done it the one who is one of Jesus' own. It's another depth of sorrow. And as Peter is, is standing here, what we read, or what I discovered, is that he's actually in the chamber of immersion. Now what the chamber of immersion is, is that it's the place where the high priest would wash themselves before they would go in and, yeah, try and seek atonement for the the people. Peter certainly must have been reminded of Jesus' words. Jesus, the servant who stooped low at supper and he washed his disciples' feet. And he he says to Peter, you are clean. 
Amazing, right? Speaking of the fact that he was that high priest, the one that, that, went, that goes before us, the one that provides forgiveness of sins. Verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? So as well as being tempted by, by men and fearing them because of their position and authority, we're also tempted, we find here that we're also tempted at our moment of weakness. Peter is undoubtedly at breaking point here. He's he is, he's questioned by somebody who is the servant of, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear he's cut off. You can imagine he's pretty, the fact that he's there, he must be pretty afraid, worried about his safety. And the interesting thing that we can take from this is that a lot of the reason why we worry is because of our own sin. Peter would have no other reason to be concerned about this individual other than the fact that he just cut off one of his relatives' ear. Again, just this denial again, speaking of this, I wouldn't say progression, I would say regression. The regression of sin, the fact that it's, it's habitual Peter probably was concerned in the, in the fact that he didn't want his testimony to be confused. So he probably thought, let me just stick with the I am not. So maybe because if I, if I say I am, then I just sound like a confused individual. And in fact, I'm almost making Jesus out to be, Jesus' disciples, disciples out to be liars. And finally, verse 27. Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. we read in Luke 22 verse 6 it says and the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord how he has said to him before the rooster crows today you will deny me three times and he went out and wept bitterly as we look into the face of Jesus through trial let's, let us not go out and weep bitterly but let us rejoice in the fact that we have overcome. Let us rejoice in the fact that we have the Spirit of God. We don't need to fear man. Jesus said, don't fear him who is able um, to only kill body, but him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So throughout all of this, just to conclude, Jesus is the ideal man. He's the ideal servant. He's the ideal king and he's the ideal God. He's the ideal man because he didn't put confidence in himself. He put confidence in God through his trial. He's the ideal servant because he, he wasn't dissuaded by, uh, by, by a love of money or a fear of man, but the fact is, when he was going through trial, he loved others, even unto death. He's the ideal king because he, he's just God. He's glorious. And again, showing that contrast between God's, the glory of Christ and the sinfulness of man. And he's the ideal God because the world hates him because he is, he's ultimately the judge, right? Throughout this, we were reading about a trial. God is the ultimate judge. But the fact is, Jesus overcame. So just to close, just think about these, these things. A few warnings and assurances. The warnings are that though well-intentioned, a believer is weak. And we need the, the sufficiency of scripture. And the, we need to depend on prayer to get us through trials. We, we learn about the warnings of self-confidence, the consequence of prayerlessness, the danger of evil company, the power of fear, 
yet we're reminded tremendously of the assurances that Christ is all-powerful. And the fact is, the story doesn't end there with Peter, that he recovers Peter and, again, emphatically says to Peter, I love you, I love you, I love you. And he makes amendment. He restores us. What an amazing God we serve. And that same Peter who denied Jesus, what did he go on to do in Acts? Preach the gospel with complete power. Full of, it says, full of the Holy Ghost. Amen. I'd just like to invite the worship team to come up as we close. So whatever, whatever stage of life you're at at the moment, no matter what you're going through, Know that Jesus is good and he is God and that he overcame where we failed. He was faithful where we were faithless like Peter. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.